Bhavanasa. This morning we turn to the meditative cultivation and unveiling of compassion. And whether it's compassion directed inwards, which as you recall there is no such thing in Buddhist terminology, or compassion turns outwards, it must be rooted in empathy, otherwise compassion doesn't arise. If there's no empathy, there's no compassion. If there's no sensing of suffering and the causes of that suffering, then there's no wish to be free of it. You know. And so it, make, it makes things a bit simpler if one lives without empathy. Simpler is not necessarily better, but simpler. And that is if you simply look upon others as objects, the I-it relationship of Martin Buber. If we just look at others as objects, just appearances, it's easier to do, because that's that's what we're actually picking up: appearances, appearances. So I look at a cell phone. I look at I look at uh, Elizabeth. Appearances, appearances. She's wearing white. This is wearing white. You know, a little bit different shape. This is much slimmer. <laughs> but they're both just appearances, and they're both made of molecules. And so I can have, I could, in principle, have as little empathy for Elizabeth as I do for a cell phone. In fact, especially if I start speaking with Siri. Siri <laughs> is much more knowledgeable than Elizabeth. <laughs> I could have a long conversation with Siri, whereas Elizabeth, I don't know, we'd run out of things to talk about. <laughs> so, to have an I eat relationship with Siri is fine because there's no one listening, there's no one there, who no one has any feelings at all. As a pleasant voice, but nevertheless, no one's there. No one's there. So it would be silly to feel empathy for Siri. It would be very, very silly. So, empathy. It becomes much easier, simpler, simpler, not easy, simpler if we don't have any. If we don't even have empathy for ourselves, then, then things cool down a bit. But of course, that's death. That's death. That's alienation. That's frozen. That's about as frozen as it gets. If, if Buddha nature is fluid, then that's about as frozen as it gets. Locked-in syndrome, where we're not even really attentive to our own feelings. That can happen, right? It's a, I imagine it can. Maybe a fine form of psychosis. Right? Could happen. So we know that meditative practice, as in the close application of mindfulness to feelings, the close application of mindfulness to mental states, including all types of emotions and desires and hopes and fears. This is designed exactly so that we can know what's going on in the mind, what's going on in the body. Close application of mindfulness to the body and the feelings arising in the body. So attending to that closely then, naturally, as we have a very clear, immediate experience of the feelings arising in the body and all the aspirations, hopes, fears and so forth arising in the mind, then quite naturally that primal impulse of caring has to arise. It's not voluntary, right? And then you could say, well, okay, I've got my hands full now. As you really practice the close application of mindfulness to the body, I have my hands full. Um, so everybody else do it too. And everybody, good luck. We'll help each out when we can. Um, but I've got my hands full here. I'm looking into, into my mind and it's so complex and there's so many 
afflictive impulses and so forth and so on that you know everybody you know I'll, I'll try to treat you all evenly but really you know every every person for yourself and one can imagine that would be simpler it's of course delusional it would be fine if I actually did exist in isolation that would make sense then if I existed independently of anybody else if everybody was kind of a Newtonian nucleus of an independent entity existing in absolute space-time and so on, that would kind of, that could make sense. But of course that's antiquated physics and it's completely delusional. But how can we experience empathy for another person? Since after all, if we really be a reductionist here, if we be very naked, very raw, when I look over there at Sally, I, I see colors. That's what I see. I see shapes. She's not a color, she's not a shape. I could hear her talk, I hear voice, I hear sound. Sound is sound is sound. It's just more sound, pleasant sound. But that's all I'm getting. I could touch her, I get tactile sensations, okay, tactile, but I can get that by touching the, you know, this cloth. I could touch a cloth on her shoulder, touch a cloth on your, what's the difference? Not much. Really, quite simple. So how can I know what's going on over there with Sally? Because I'm just getting impressions, impressions. Imagination. We can start there. Imagination. This all came up in this morning meditation. I was just blown away, so interested. I've got, oh, I think I must have, what's it called? Uh, cable TV. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting all these foreign cha channels coming in and all that. I didn't know that. Cool. <laughs> keep, keep, keep. <laughs> I got cable. <laughs> a long time ago, I only had static. <laughs> I got cable. <laughs> and it's free. And so I'm trying to let you bootleg on my, uh, on my cable TV. We can imagine. We can imagine. We've been we've done that before, right? In the compassion meditation. Imagine, imagine. If that seems like a stretch, it shouldn't. Oh, Caroline. Do you know what you look like right now? Do you know what you look like? You don't have no idea. Do you look like a frog? <laughs> Do you have six legs? Are you purple? Do you know what you look like? I thought, she, said, she said yes, sure, so I reassured her because first she didn't think so. I mean, what your smile looked like, you know, don't you? Yeah. You've got a very good imagination because you can't see any of that right now. You're looking at me. You're imagining yourself. You're visualizing yourself. Your, your smile, your, your eyes, your hands, your body. You're imagining yourself, because you're not seeing it. You're seeing me. Now, I'm, of course, I'm doing the same thing. In fact, this is something that makes you more intimate to me than me, because I'm imagining me, and I'm seeing you. But I'm imagining me. I'm looking. I mean, I'm just wide awake here. I'm looking. I don't see me at all. I mean, my head is like, you know, like a bird with his 
head out in front of him, so I'm not seeing any of me at all. I'm not seeing any appearance of me at all. Not, I mean nothing. <coughs> nothing. <laughs> you know, nothing. So whatever knowledge I have of myself right now is entirely imagination. Whereas Carolyn, I can see. And I can see smile. She seemed quite, you know, content, cheerful. That I can see. I can't even see my mouth. Can't even see my nose. Oh, got a little bit of nose. <laughs> it's not full of much information. <laughs> so, Yolisk is actually more real to me perceptually than me because I can see her. I can see. I can see her face. I can see her. I know. I know how to read expression. And there's a happy smile. So I know. That's. But I can't see mine. <laughs> I don't know what my face looks like. So we're imagining ourselves all the time. Every time you go on a trip, every time you're tripping, every time you're tripping, that's an old LSD term, right? Tripping? <laughs> you're tripping every time you wander into rumination. You're tripping. I mean, isn't that what it is? Abducted, tripping, right? Every single time. How often do you trip? How often do you walk and how often do you trip? You're tripping right now, yeah. Every time you're tripping, you're in a world of only imagination. I mean, what else? You're not, you're not what, that's just pure imagination, right? And according to psychology, we're, we're tripping 80% of the time. And that's without LSD. Really, 80% of the time, people are tripping. They're off in rumination sometimes, like that. So we're living just overall in the present moment, 80% of the time, we're living in an imaginary world. Don, do you remember being a girl? Do you remember being a girl? Do you remember yesterday? Do you remember who you were? Do you have a, do you have a life history? None of it exists, you know. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, doesn't exist anywhere, right? I mean, yesterday and the day before and who you were when you were 15 and 20 and, fi and 18 and 30 and 40, you know, it doesn't exist anywhere at all. Does it? So you're imagining who you were. Because you're not tapping into it. You're not just kind of putting a fishing rod into the past and pulling out things. You're imagining everything you were, right? And then do you have any future? Do you have, have any future? That's, that's clearly imagination. Because that doesn't exist anywhere else. So your past doesn't exist anywhere, does it? And you, so you're imagining who you were. You're imagining, because it's a story after all. I mean, you don't have a, you don't have data of every moment. You don't have on tap data of all your experiences. I mean, you're what, 50 years old or something. How many seconds is that of waking, let alone all oh, five to seven dreams per night? How many nights have you slept? And that counts too. That's part of your continuum. And so your memory of who you are, that's fiction. And it's completely imagination, because it doesn't exist anywhere in, the, anywhere in the universe, and it doesn't exist in anybody else's mind either. That's your pure primary, oh, not primary, it's your unique, your private imagination. Everything you think you were, your whole past, it's, it's fiction, right? It's imagination, inspired by a few little glimmerings here of, you know, like a Walt Disney film, inspired by true events here and there, but we don't take them too seriously. So the future is imaginary, the past is imaginary, 
and 80% of the time our present is imaginary. What we look like is imaginary. So how hard should it be then to imagine other people when we can actually see them? We see other people much more than we see ourselves. So in the flight of the Garuda, that passage I cited earlier, I, I reviewed it because I thought of a better translation. Never thought of it before. It's very helpful. I think it's really spot on. You remember when in the flight of the Garuda, when Shapgarambaje is speaking of the, the very beginning, the very beginning, when light flows forth from primordial consciousness. And in that instant, Samantabhadra Dharmakaya recognizes these effulgences of displays of Dharmakaya and is instantly awake. I mean, there it is, just instant recognition, sudden awakening, right? In that sec, in that moment of their appearance, recognizing exactly what they are, and then awake, Buddha, right? On the other hand, simultaneously in this beginning, before there was any differentiation between samsara and nirvana, there is this kone, which means born together with, hlenke, ignorance, and that's failing to recognize appearances as effulgences, your own appearances, the own pure displays of your dharmakaya, of your own mind. Not recognizing, not aware. That's conate, born with. So Samadabhadra has no beginning, ignorance has no beginning, but they both have a beginning, a beginningless time before samsara and nirvana are differentiated, and that beginning, as Claudio said, is right now. Right. But the first one is simply the not recognition, the unawareness, failing to know these appearances as nothing other than pure effulgences, expressions, creative displays of Dharmakaya. That's conate. Conate. Remember that one? But then there was that second one, and I translated it as speculative ignorance. That's I got a better translation. Because it's kundudapa. Marikpa kunda kundudape marikpa. Imaginative. That's exactly what it is. Imaginative. Something you project, something you imagine, something you superimpose. And what was that imaginative ignorance? And that is having failed to recognize these appearances as pure displays of primordial consciousness. The imaginative ignorance is slipping into dualistic grasping of seeing appearances as something other than yourself. Having already reified yourself as a subject over here, and therefore the appearances is over there, and objects over there, dualistic grasping. Okay, welcome to samsara. Because that's how it all starts. Right? Imaginative. So we are imagining the world. We're imagining the universe. We're imagining ourselves, and we're already doing this with no meditative practice. So you, you say you can't, you can't visualize? You visualize extremely well. Because <laughs> you've been imagining yourself your whole life. <laughs> imagining the universe. So how hard should it be then to imagine other people and their feelings, emotions? Since we're doing it all the time, with or without meditative practice. That point of conate ignorance and then imaginative ignorance. The sheer not knowing and then the imagining 
out of delusion, that which never was. It struck me just this morning as having a very strong parallel with a very simple point that comes up in Buddhist Epistemology 101, when you're just studying really basics. And that is, you recall this, that I look over there in the direction of Suzanne, so I close my eyes, and then open my eyes again. <laughs> and in that first moment, opening the eyes, then in that very first moment, of course there's visual perception, and visual perception remains perception. Your eyes don't think. Your visual cortex doesn't think. It's just picking up picking up impressions, picking up appearances, colors and shapes, right? So, But it's said in Buddhist epistemology that, of course, if I open my eyes and my mental awareness, my attention, is focused right where Suzanne is, which is like right now, in the first moment, when the one is piggybacked on the other, the mental, mental awareness, mental consciousness, is piggybacked on, parasitic to, the visual consciousness, in that first moment, that first really micro moment, extremely brief, it's mental perception. Mentally, you're just getting the appearances. Not what some, just the appearances. Just getting that, you're mentally perceiving it, visually perceiving it, and together with that, mentally perceiving just what's there, what's being presented, what's right there, right? And in the second moment, I mean just a microsecond later, very, very short, then comes the conceptual, the, the matrix. And that is your conceptual framework, your language, your history. Oh yeah, Suzanne, I know her name is Kila, and I used to spell it with E, but to know in German it's not Suzanne with an E, it's with, you know, I remember, I remember, you know? And so, <laughs> comes all the stuff, all the, like, the big dump truck of Suzanne, <clears throat> and I just dump truck on her, the conceptual grid, and now she makes sense. Now I make sense of Suzanne, right? And that perception, that instant, oh, it's gone. The first one's perception, the second one is imagination. The second one's imagination. I'm imagining. And so there's a tiny bit of Suzanne filtering through in terms of sheer appearances, and the rest is all imagination. Imaginative ignorance. So it would be simpler, it would be morbid, but it would be simpler to try to just attend to my own business and let only my own reality be my reality by only tending to myself and my feelings and my hopes, fears and concerns. That would be simpler. Simpler for sure. Because then everybody else, you know, just benevolently get on with it, good luck, and malevolently don't get in my way. And I want you, and I want you, but I don't want you, and I want, and I don't want you to get in front of me because I want that. And also, with them, we have samsara. It's attachment. It's hostility. It's it's a mess. But if we can do this benevolently, not aggressively, non-violently, then one might think, well, that could be okay. But of course, it's still delusional, and it's very lonely. It's solipsistic. It's cold. It's cold. Remember how the universe freezes. It goes from liquid, this is really cold. It's the nearer, near enemy of equanimity, isn't it? Aloof indifference. Aloof indifference. And we say of those people, well, it just flows from the lips in any language, I think, in the European languages. This person's so cold. This person's so cold. Doesn't seem to give a damn about anybody. Unflappable, unmovable, doesn't give a darn. 
It's so cold. You have to want to put on your down jacket when you get this person. They're frigid cold. So that doesn't sound happy. That doesn't sound like any way to genuine happiness. No way. So now life becomes complicated. There's more. There are more people in the universe than me. Shucks. <laughs> now life has become complicated. You know. It becomes not too complicated if you only think about your family and treat everybody else as its. But then if you think about community, it gets more complicated. And then if you think about your species, more complicated. And we think about all creatures throughout all of space, then that's more complicated. So how do we develop empathy for others? By attending closely, not only by looking at appearances, but with our imagination. Attending, attending, finding that similarity, that common ground. And we do it with imagination. In the meditation, we've done it before. I was reading more about this incredibly tragic situation. It's four million, I've heard as many as five million refugees from Syria now. And there are a number of Arab states just won't even let them in or makes it really hard for them, even though they're, you know, drowning in money. And some of them are, t- uh, some, some of them are Lebanon, Jordan, incredibly generous. Two million people they've absorbed. These are tiny countries, right? Two million people they've absorbed who are foreigners, but they're desperate. So, and now the Europeans, you know, are really waking up, you know, this is so interesting. Europeans generally kind of Christian base, you know, but, and they were resisting, we don't, more Muslims, more Muslims, do we really want more Muslims? And then after a while it was like, we've got no choice. If we want to maintain any kind of dignity, any kind of integrity, whether you're German, you're English, you're Dutch, you're Norwegian, you're Australian, if you really want to sense that you're really human, you can't say no. Yes, there are Muslims. Yes, there are Muslim terrorists. Yes, there are problems in Islam and today in the modern world. But beneath all of that are human beings. And as Shantideva says, suffering has no owner. So it's wonderful to see, really. So incredibly sad. So much difficulty. So many. So much suffering. But it's also good to see, especially Europe, especially Europe, multiple countries now, Australia also gearing up to accept more of these poor souls, just fleeing for their lives pretty much. It's such a catastrophe there. It was Assad and now it's ISIS. And what's coming next? What we, we know, more bloodshed. You want to be a prophet? Suggest more bloodshed, you'll probably be right. So it's wonderful that. It's coming from empathy. It's coming from seeing photos. Seeing photos, as I saw this morning. <laughs> photo, it's impressions, it's images of a nine-year-old boy. And he somehow got separated from his parents. And so he's a nine-year-old boy on his own as a refugee. He looks a lot like a a ten-year-old boy, I know. His name is Troy. Little skin skin color, a little bit different. Besides that, pretty much the same. So So we use our imagination. That they're not appearances, they're not images. 
and that's cell phones. Fundamentally, they're just like us. And we attend with our imagination. We've been imagining ourselves all along. Why not imagine others? That's what we do. That's where empathy comes from. While we're locked in, this kind of locked-in syndrome, locked-in syndrome, being locked in, in this rather small space of our ordinary minds, dualistic minds, caught up in our thoughts and our ruminations and our concerns of I, me, mine, I, me, mine, locked-in syndrome, you know. Even then, even while we're caught in delusion, we're caught in our mental afflictions, even then, even from that vantage, we can still, and we see it, even governments, which can be so impersonal. It's wonderful to see. Really, there's some things to have mudita for. Seeing governments, which can be so selfish and corrupt and so forth, one after another, really saying, okay, we've got to help. Got to help. That's good. That's good. Really wonderful. It'll be complicated. It's easier to just seal your borders and have everybody within your borders look like you. That's easier. But then you're called. That means you're on your way to death. Mm. But we also have, in the simple practice of shamatha, the possibility to melt a bit, to melt a bit, to take this crystallized mind that seems so intimate, that presses in, that seems so powerful, so easily makes us miserable and happy and anxious and fearful and serene and agitated. And this mind that is so powerful and yet unfindable, in the great, great irony, so powerful and unfindable, and to let it melt, let it melt, let it settle, descend into its natural state. And so it melts into the substrate consciousness. So there's a deep impulse in the human spirit. I think it's in the spirit of sentient beings altogether, but we know humans best. Deep impulse to transcend ourselves. It seems everywhere. It's in ISIS, for sure. I'm absolutely sure of it. ISIS. It's drawing more and more people to ISIS. It gives them a larger vision, a larger purpose, a greater sense of meaning, of something absolute, of, of something utterly true that is of the highest good, God's own will here on earth. That's it. If I were ISIS, that's what I would say. That's what they do say. They do say that. And it sounds good to me until you see the manifestation of it. But that greater sense of connectivity, that sense of no longer being an isolated person here or there, but you're some, some, part of something greater, something larger, something with tremendous passion and willing to self-sacrifice for something that is the highest good that will bring peace to humanity and everybody following the truth, the one truth. Sounds good to me until we see how it manifests. But I think I, I get it. I think I get it. I think I can actually empathize. While at the same time, it's about the worst thing happening on planet Earth right now. 
We wish to transcend, transcend the, the locked-in syndrome of our own egos, of our own isolated being, and joining a movement, a cult, a political party, a university, a business, a religion, and so forth, gives you a sense of transcendence beyond these narrow, suffocating confines of our own isolated individuality. Yeah? So we all want that. I think we all want that. And we do it in various ways. Even having a family. Well, now I'm transcending myself because I'm taking care of my children, my spouse, my parents, my, maybe my community. Self-transcendence. It's painful not to transcend. And so we want to transcend. So we can transcend outwards by joining a group, joining a meditation retreat, joining a Buddha Sangha, joining a Vajrayana Sangha, and so forth. Nothing wrong with that. But this practice of shamatha is self-transcendence by going inwards to the substrate consciousness which transcends your sense of self. That's why it's frightening. That's when your practice is going well and you're really getting quiet. And the little voice says, maybe pull back now. <laughs> I'm not sure this is safe. <laughs> what will you do without me? <laughs> and if you don't have an answer for that, is I'm coming, I'm coming. <laughs> when you find that, in fact, you can go into the deep end of the pool, and the pool is a Mediterranean sea and has a high, high salt sight content, and you can float, then you know you can descend and you won't drown. You can leave your imaginative self, your imaginary self. There's a movie about the six-foot rabbit. you remember the guy? Mm -hmm. Six-foot rabbit, his, his friend? Um, yeah. Harvey, uh, Harvey, his imaginative friend. You're Harvey. <laughs> You've been imagining yourself all along, and when you stop imagining, get, guess what gets lost? your imaginary self, because the conceptual process is dying down, it's quieting down, and Harvey, Harvey, <laughs> Harvey's fading out. <laughs> the mind that created Harvey and the Harvey created are both fading out. It looked like double suicide. You shoot me, I'll shoot you. <laughs> Scary if you're Harvey. You're facing extinction but you are transcending yourself, and lo and behold, it turns out to be blissful, luminous, luminous, and serene. That sounds good. Slipping into the substrate consciousness and transcending yourself, rather than going outward, going inward, you can transcend either way. What's so amazing here as we have it from some of the greatest contemplative scientists in the Buddhist tradition, such as Atisha, Kamachame, and other sources that he cited, just achieving shamatha, which, when it boils down to it, is having your mind, your coarse mind, your locked-in mind that is so localized, you even think inside, even though even think it's inside your head, which is a very small cage. Let me out. <laughs> In your, let me out of your imaginary head. 
It's really like a person in a, out in the desert visualizing a cage, like hypnotic spell, you know? Visualizing a cage. Like a, a pantomime artist, you know? Help! <laughs> Everybody looking, what are you, what are you touching? <laughs> You're touching the imaginary cage that you projected and then reified, and it in fact is locking you in. Well, it, the cage melts. When you achieve shamatha, your mind melts, the cage melts, and you're into an open space that is very, very open, very, very expansive. And these great masters, Atisha, Kamachamaramachi, and others, many, many others, in this now, this current, this current from Mahayana to Vajrayana, Mahamudra and Dzogchen in particular, uh, they say, tap into that, achieve shamatha, just access to the first jhana, that's enough. And one of the perks, of the derivative benefits, is jinsem shivengonshi. The extrasensory perception of others' minds. Jinsem shivengonshi. That's exactly very close translation. Extrasensory perception of others' minds. You can actually know other people's minds. You're not imagining. So I know, I know the color of of Amy's jacket. I don't have to imagine it. That I know. Amy, I have to imagine, but you know the color of the jacket that I can see. And so jensem jensem shepe, not kuntotape, but shepe, a paranormal kind of a, a extrasensory perception that does not imagine others, but actually knows others' minds. Well, if you know others' minds, you should have some immediate experience of their feelings, hopes, fears, desires, thoughts, and so forth. You become a mole in the minds of others, so to speak. We'd have to say by, you know, using our imagination here, for, for those of us who have not experienced that, we can still imagine it to some extent. It's not inconceivable. But it would seem to be the case that, as an ordinary sentient being who's, you know, got something of an exceptional ability of shamatha and the ability to know the minds of others, that you'll still be knowing the minds of others from your perspective. But not just your coarse mind perspective, because you're viewing the minds of others from something that is not your coarse mind perspective. It's not an Australian perspective. It's not a man or woman's perspective, or old person, young person's perspective. You're viewing them from the substrate consciousness. Right. View your own mind from your substrate consciousness, and you'll perceive your mind rather than imagining it. Is that, is that familiar at all in any kind of practice you've done? Settling the mind in its natural state is your best approximation of viewing your mind from a transpersonal perspective. And that is viewing your own mind from the perspective of the substrate consciousness. You're having kind of a clairvoyant perception, an out-of-mind experience of your own mind from a perspective that is not locked into your mind, but is viewing it as Lerap Lingba says, a non-conceptual awareness of your own mind, which itself is filled with concepts. So from that perspective, substrate consciousness, as you attend to your own mind, and you can do that, you don't have to, you can view the, the thoughts and so forth coming up from the perspective of substrate consciousness, and you're perceiving them, not imagining them. <laughs> 
in some mysterious way. Maybe we'll be able to articulate it one day. For me right now, it's somewhat mysterious. And that is when you're resting your own substrate consciousness, bear in mind you're not locked in, you don't have a, you're not in a, in a mental straitjacket. Very much to the contrary. Supple, buoyant, light, malleable, remember those, those adjectives? So if you want to engage in Vipassana, you engage in Vipassana. If you want to direct your attention to your past, you can start unveiling past life recall, recall past life memories, veridically, rigorously, with high degree of accuracy. Hmm. So you can practice Vipassana, you can practice bodhicitta, cultivate bodhicitta, you can direct your attention to the past, retrieve memories from the past, but also you can direct them outwards. You can direct your attention outwards to the minds of others. And then from that perspective, then you can see, in a way similar to the way you perceive your own mind, that coarse mind, you're perceiving it from the perspective of substrate consciousness, you can perceive the minds of others from the perspective of your substrate consciousness. Deeper form of empathy, deeper form of compassion. Maybe that's why Atisha says that by developing shamatha, he said it's indispensable, by developing shamatha, you can develop these various modes of ex extracentric perception. And by the power of that, and he's assuming motivation of bodhicitta, because that's already been dealt with, that's foundational, already done that, right? But prior to, it's sandwiched between cultivating bodhicitta, experiencing bodhicitta, and cultivating the perfections of generosity, of ethics, patience, and enthusiasm. Now samadhi, that's where shamatha comes, and Vipassana is right around the corner, but we haven't gotten there yet, the perfection of wisdom. But right there, in this, in this context, right there, renunciation, bodhicitta, renunciation as an authentic motivation, bodhicitta, cultivation, activating your bodhicitta, cultivating generosity, ethics, patience, enthusiasm, the first four. And then it's shamatha time, achieve shamatha, Within that context, then Atisha says in his lamp for the path to enlightenment, you can you can accumulate more merit in one day in one day than you can in a hundred lifetimes without having that ability, without having achieved shamatha, without having achieved these modes of extrasensory perception. One day versus a hundred lifetimes. You do the math and you see, you know, he's speaking probably not with great precision mathematically, but order of magnitude, one to three million. I did the arithmetic. One to three million. That's in one day. You're getting, you've just increased your investment by three million times. When people invest in the stock market, they just sing and dance for joy when they double it. You, know, you put in $10,000, get 20. Oh man, you, your head's about to explode. You're so happy. Right? Here, one day investment, the dividend just came back three million times what you invested. And you haven't achieved shamatha yet? What the hell are you waiting for? This is a really good investment. Right? It gives you a deeper platform from empathy. If you can actually know the minds of others. Even it's still from your perspective. It's not non-dual. You haven't gone into the Pashtuna realm yet. You have not yet taken the bull of dualistic grasping by the horns, wrestled it to the ground, and conquered it. You haven't, you're not a victorious one yet. But you're pretty sane. Still caught up in dualistic grasping, but it's more tamed. You know? And from that perspective, you have a much deeper ground for empathy.
and therefore foundation for much deeper compassion. Now, if you continue to melt, you know, don't stop there. And you break through, you melt, you shatter the infrastructure, this crystallized formation of your individualized substrate consciousness. If you break through that to pristine awareness, then another whole order of magnitude, super mundane cities, these are mundane cities, knowing your past, clairvoyance, clairaudience, super, they're mundane cities. They're still locked within samsara. You can exercise them, but if that's all you're doing, you're, you're spinning your wheels in samsara. You're just going around and around. You're not going anywhere at all. It's around and around. Nice place, poor place, up and down, up and down. Super mundane cities. Now, okay, now that's getting you somewhere. That's actually moving out. That's, got, that's reaching liftoff. That's going out of the gravitational field of samsara. Escape velocity outside the gravitational field of this sphere, this circle, cycle of samsara. Tap into rikpa. Tap into rikpa. Tap deeper into rikpa. Rest in rikpa. Let the veils evaporate like layers and layers of mist. And then your awareness of the minds of others is non-dual. And then your compassion is non-dual. It's called mikpa mepeninche. It's compassion without an object. Because your awareness of the sufferings of others, their joys and sorrows, hopes and fears, it's not from outside. Because after all, your rikpa is not something other than somebody else's rikpa. It's their rikpa. They're not getting God's rikpa or Buddha's rikpa or Amitabha's rikpa. It's their rikpa. That's why it says rangi rikpa, your own rikpa. But their own rikpa, kera rangi rikpa, your own rikpa, and ngara rangi rikpa, they're not different. And they're not the same. They do transcend conceptual categories, including one and many. But they're not different. And therefore, your empathy for others will be non-dual. Your compassion will be non-dual. And it'll be utterly fused with insight. That's what came up this morning. Then I turned off the set. So, as we did before, let's just do our devotions. And the practice this morning on your own, settle your mind in its natural state. With this pure vision. We'll start with the pure vision. We'll start, we'll, and we'll leave with that pure vision. Go back to your meditation. Settle your mind into natural state. And then see who comes to mind. Who comes to mind. And when they first come to mind, They'll be like my gazing at Elizabeth or at Suzanne. Appearances, appearances. But of course, appearances, there are appearances and then there are appearances. There's appearances of a cell phone. There's appearances of someone who sounds very human, Siri, who's not. There's nobody there. And then there's appearances of sentient beings. And when, you, when they come to mind with the power of your imagination, which you're using all the time anyway, so don't tell me you can't do it because you're doing it right now, Turn 180 degrees around. Use your imagination to imagine yourself being a nine-year-old boy on a Greek island who doesn't know where his parents are. And they don't know where he is. But he appeared in a major American newspaper online. 
his appearance. That's just one. There are four million of them, and that's just Syria. That's just one. Slip over. Imagine being. Slip back to where you are. Then with each in-breath, arousing compassion, drawing the sorrow, the fear, the pain. And extinguish it, because the light in your heart is greater than all of that, infinitely so. Draw it all in to the point of vanishing, and imagine relief, imagine serenity, imagine peace. That's the practice. So let's do our devotions. Namo lama deshe dupe ku kunjo sumge ranjin la datan do tu nam chanju badu kyapsu chi. Namo. In the lama who is the embodiment of the sugatas, of the nature of the three jewels, I, together with the beings of the six realms, take refuge until our enlightenment. Sengendo akundundu lama sangye dupne Kanla kandu tinle kir doa doa dam chao. For the sake of all beings, I generate the spirit of awakening and cultivate the realization of the Lama as Buddha. By means of enlightened activity, I shall train each being according to their needs, and I vow to liberate the world. In the northwest frontier of Odiana, in the heart of a lotus, sits the one renowned as Padmasambhava, who achieved the wondrous supreme city and is surrounded by a host of many dakinis. Following in your footsteps, I devote myself to practice. Please come forth and bestow your blessings. Guru Pemesidi Hum.
गुरु पे मैं सिरी हूँ Let's bring the session to a close.